Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, back and relaxed from my holiday, uh, joined in the studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Pat, you've been looking after the shop very well in my absence. A, a pale shadow of your own luminous presence. A little bit later, we'll be joined by our colleague Una Mullally to remember our colleague Noel Whelan, who died very sadly only last week. But first, we are joined by James Forsyth, he's the political editor of The Spectator, to get his perspective on Brexit and the impending Boris Johnson prime ministership uh, from what I suppose is a broadly conservative perspective. James, you're very welcome to the podcast. We, uh, certainly I and I think Pat also, listen with great interest to your own uh, daily uh, Coffeehouse podcast that The Spectator produces. It gives a good insight into some of the thinking that's happening across the water at the moment. So I wanted to ask you first about what happened in this uh, Conservative leadership debate the other day when uh, um, both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, but more importantly Boris Johnson, because he's definitely going to be the next Prime Minister, uh, categorically ruled out things which we thought what might have been on the table otherwise like um having a you know having a time limit on the backstop or some other kind of mechanism was ruled out what was happening there and why did Boris Johnson do you think at this stage in the campaign feel the need to do that I think in some ways it was a surprise because throughout this campaign Boris Johnson has been giving himself slightly more wiggle room on Brexit as the campaign has gone on and this appeared to shut off some avenues I think one of the reasons why that happened is that there is a sense that Dublin is not shifting at all on the backstop and is instead doubling down in its position. So, you know, if it's not going to happen, why say that it's acceptable? I also think that Boris Johnson is trying to, to reassure Tory Brexiteers that he wants more than just a change to the backstop. I also think we might be about to get into some linguistic gymnastics, which is you could argue but if a backstop has an exit clause or a time limit, it ceases to be a backstop and instead becomes a kind of extended transition for the Irish border, which is a very different thing. Um, so, but I think I think the message Boris Johnson is trying to send to Brussels is that he really is prepared to do no deal. I mean, I mean one of the things that you've got to understand about Boris Johnson's view on this is he really does view no deal as kind of almost like the kind of trident nuclear deterrent. By having it in your arsenal, you don't have to use it. Pat, what do you make of that? I I, I think um, the difficulty with that strategy of is never having to use it, the nuclear analogy, is that if the other guy knows that you will never use it, then it's certain... it, it kind of weakens the deterrent aspect of it. I think you have to look at this as a timing thing. And from what I gather from conversations with people in and around the Irish government, I think they're not actually paying a huge deal of attention. Well, that's 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 the wrong way to put it. It's not that they're not paying attention. It's just that they're not putting a great deal of weight on what the uh, what Boris Johnson is saying at the moment because they are politicians they understand he is in an election campaign with a very specific 
electorate. So what people say to me is, let's see which UK Prime Minister we get. And what they mean by that is not whether it is Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson. They mean, let's see what Boris says. Let's see which Boris we get and what Boris says when he becomes Prime Minister. And I think, you know, a window into that sort of thinking was last weekend, last last Friday, when Leo Varadkar said that, you know, he thinks that... Uh, Boris Johnson or whoever becomes UK Prime Minister will get a bit of a wake-up call when uh, when he becomes uh, Prime Minister, when he gets in and sits in that office in number 10 and the consequences of a no deal and the realities of the negotiations as they, as they have played out thus far uh, are, 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 are on his desk and he is confronted by them. That begs that huge question, James, because I really have no idea at all, maybe you can help with this, as to what kind of a Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to be in that circumstance. Well, I think I think one of the things that Boris Johnson intends to do is, is to flip that question back on to the Irish government. When we interviewed him earlier in the leadership campaign, he was very – he is essentially – the Theresa May position was it's not acceptable for the UK to say we're not going to build a border – are you to Dublin? But that is essentially what Boris Johnson is going to do. In that interview of us, he was very clear that he's not going to build any infrastructure at the border, and so therefore it would be a it would be an Irish or an EU decision to bring back border checks. Now, I, I, I mean, everyone can argue about whether this is kind of long term compatible with WCO rules and the like, but I think he is. I think he is going to try and put the pressure on Dublin by saying we're not doing this. Are you going to? And I mean, they'll try and use every talk that comes out of, you know, any, every talk about mitigating things, you know, doing it away from the border. They're going to try and use that as an argument saying, well, if, you, if that can be done in the event of no deal, why can't it be done in the event I, of I a deal? I think, you know, that there is a, a danger and what James says bears it out. I think that both, both sides spend the next number of weeks in a way trying to avoid the blame for a no deal rather than actually trying to avoid a no deal uh, itself. And, you know, I think we'll have to wait a few weeks until Boris Johnson becomes prime minister and we see he gets his feet under the table and so forth. And we see the sort of approaches that he makes and the sort of proposals that he makes to Brussels and and to Dublin at that point to get a fix on how these negotiations are going to work. But what we can say, I think, at the moment is if you take the rhetoric from both sides at face value, then we are on course for a no deal. There's no question about that. And James, let me ask you about that in relation to No Deal, because the other analogy that strikes me, apart from the nuclear deterrence one, is the August 1914 one, when the trains start mobilising the troops up to the the borders and things, you know, sort of an inexorable quality, you know, is assumed. And we can kind of see that happening over the next few weeks and listening to you guys on your podcast and listening to other debates. One of the things we are going to see over the next few weeks is more and more concrete discussions about what, on this side of the IRC, we call a disorderly Brexit would actually look like. And I've heard you discussing this question of whether on the EU side and on the Irish side as well, there's a misapprehension that what the British really need is is a disorderly Brexit to bring them to their senses and that that that, for example, Emmanuel Macron uh, might, you know, might welcome that even, how hard that that is to believe. 
I, I think there is a danger. I think the idea that, um, to, to carry on with the World War One analogies, that this would all be over by Christmas. That if the UK crashed out on October 31st, you know, they'd be back at the negotiating table by Christmas having said, OK, we'll pay 39 billion and we'll accept the backstop. I, I think that analogy is flawed because I think to, um, to make a success of no deal Brexit, given the predictions, it just has to not, kind of almost not be the apocalypse. And I, I think that, that, that there is a danger, but even if, look, no deal would undoubtedly be economically disruptive. But if it is economically disruptive, but not, a, but not, um, but doesn't totally and utterly crash the economy, I think you could see a situation where the UK says, ah, look, this wasn't as bad as we thought it might be. And therefore, we're not going to return to the table. I think, in a way, everyone needs to step back for a second and reflect on the fact that there, there is a co- fundamental contradiction in the backstop at the moment, which is it could be about to cause the precise thing that it is meant to avoid. And I think what, 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 what one of the things that alarms me is that a few months ago, you did hear um, uh, Irish senior Irish figures accepting that, you know, maybe taking Northern Ireland out of the customs territory of the UK, you know, maybe that had been a mistake. Maybe it would have been more sensible for the backstop to have concentrated on regulatory alignment rather than on the whole customs territory question. But what worries me now is that on both sides, you seem to see people digging in uh, and, and becoming um, more determined to stick to their position come what may. I, I think James is correct. And I think that's the phase we're in at the moment. And that phase may get a little hairier in the weeks to come. But I think that by the time you get to September and into October, there will be an effort to come to an agreement on uh, on both sides. The difficulty from Dublin's point of view, I think, is that will require some movement in some shape or form on the backstop. I think, and and James could guide us perhaps in in greater detail on this, but I think Boris Johnson will want a deal. I don't think he will want a great deal. I I don't think he will want a massive concession. I think he will probably realise if he doesn't already that talk of ripping out the backstop and tearing it up and all that is simply not going to fly in either Brussels or in Dublin. But he will need some sort of a concession, be it a fig leaf or something more substantive that allows him to go into the House of Commons and allow How's Jeffrey Cox to say, or whoever the Attorney General is, is to say as a matter of law, this is different, which would enable him to pass the withdrawal or a slightly amended withdrawal treaty. But that will require some sort of movement from the EU side. Now, we don't see that. uh, We don't see scope for that at the moment. But I think that's what may change in September into October. And I think that's why the Irish government will be faced with some difficult decisions. I also think in the reality of the parliamentary arithmetic is such that the changes on the backstop also need to make it acceptable to the Democratic Unionist Party here. Uh, and I think, I, think, I think that is in some ways less difficult than some people expect. But I think they would need to... I think, I think if the DUP are not satisfied with the changes, it becomes very, very hard to pass any deal. Just the, the parliamentary maths just becomes very, very difficult. The, the, the difficulty with uh, allowing that, I mean, I agree that the DUP will have to be brought on board in some shape or form, but it's a question, I suppose, how you would do that. Does that come from, 
you know, Boris Johnson going to them and saying, look, you might not be happy with 100 percent of uh, of this, but it is better than what the alternative could be. And you're just going to have to sign up for it. This is as good as it's going to get. The, the there is a fundamental question, I think, that the uh, that in many of the British debates hasn't really been faced up to and and. It, it, it seems to me this concession has been made in a much greater sense by Britain a long time ago, which is that the North is different from the rest of the UK. That is the whole basis of the Good Friday Agreement. So the insist, insistence that there can be absolutely no difference whatsoever between how the North is treated under backstop arrangements or under withdrawal agreement arrangements than the rest of the UK is in a way a retrenchment to a pre-Good Friday position. And which that, is, ret- of course, that retrenchment is because it's a minority government supported by the Democratic Unionist Party, which, to be fair... Never, you know, didn't sign up for the Good Friday Agreement in the first place. Well, precisely. But I, but I think I, I mean one of the things I would I would I would say against that is I, I think that I think the UK body politic does accept that Northern Ireland is has a constitutionally different position essentially than the rest of the UK, um, and the kind of recognition of the border pole and the Good Friday Agreement is a sign of that. But one of the things I would say, which I think is one of the things that makes it difficult is I think it is quite hard to reconcile the backstop with the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement because the Good Friday Agreement is about kind of bottom-up north-south cooperation and the backstop doesn't feel like that. The backstop feels much more top-down and I mean there is also a problem which is the... Now, I obviously... I know Stormont is not up and running which is a kind of large flaw with this argument but it does also seem odd how resistant the EU has been to a role for the, one of the institutions created by the Good Friday Agreement in um, presiding over the backstop. I, I was very struck by Geoffrey Donaldson's letter to your newspaper a few weeks back, which is, 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 essentially seemed to be saying, look, if you let Stormont run the backstop on um, agriculture and all the SPS questions, the North would choose to align with the EU rather than with GB. I suppose one of the worries about that, though, James, is that um, you're looking for quite a, quite a leap of faith and of trust on both sides. And, and yeah, in fact, there's more, know, more, more than two sides here. Obviously, there's the Northern Ireland side as well. There's the EU, there's the Irish, there's the British. And and that, that trust on all sides is, is sort of lacking at the moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No, look, I, I, undoubtedly, I think there is a... I think the, I think the, the UK side was guilty of not appreciating quite how much Brexit would impact on Ireland. And I think that the Irish side in recent weeks have been kind of slightly guilty of some grandstanding. I look at, you know, what uh, Leo Varadkar said the other day about, you know, the UK is going to go into a prolonged period of economic decline. And I wondered if that, if that really is diplomatic and neighbourly language. It doesn't make it easier to come to a compromise, put it like that. I think that's I think that's probably true. Now, scratching around for uh, a lead story last Friday, I was in delighted. In the middle of July. Uh, in the middle of July for the following day's paper, I was delighted when I heard uh, Leo Varadkar's comments. But I did wonder, why is he saying this? And what do and you think of that? Is there a certain amount just of political maladroitness in terms of what happened there last week, Pat? Or was there, as, think, as James is suggesting, a kind of a hardening, a bit of kind of soapboxing going on? I think it's as always in these situations. It's uh, it, it's it's a combination of a couple of things. It's a consequence of Leo Varadkar's tendency, which has got him in trouble sometimes in the past, to answer a question that he is asked. 
And it's also, I think, got to do with the fact that, you know, Leo Varadkar's government has, I think, profited politically in the past by wearing the green jersey in the way that the two Tory candidates, are, I suppose, are seeking to wear, I suppose, the white jersey uh, uh, at the moment during their their election campaign is that, um, you know, Leo, Leo Varadkar profited, I think, by being seen to stand up to the British, to go to Europe and to get results. And, you know, that is part of the political dynamic. And we might as well uh, and we might as well admit it. I think that the the difficulty that he may face if he is faced, as I think he will be with these difficult decisions in September and October, is that he may be faced with uh, a question of whether you know, uh, he faces, he, he willingly accepts some political damage to his uh, government. I'm not entirely convinced that a retreat on the backstop or a partial retreat or the admission of a protocol or something like that, which afforded a concession to Boris Johnson to enable him to pass the withdrawal agreement. I'm not necessarily sure that that would be a political disaster at all for Leo Varadkar, but I'm pretty sure that he fears that it might be. I mean, there, I mean, I mean, there are two grounds for optimism, which in terms of the position of a DUP. One is that the vast majority of the DUP's MPs really don't want no deal. Um, uh, And and I think that that is one positive factor. Uh, And then I think the second positive factor, uh, as someone very close to them put it to me, they know that they brought down one Prime Minister. They've played a role in bringing down one Prime Minister. They, They know that it would be dangerous for them to play a role in bringing down another Prime Minister. And I think I think that does mean that the DUP are, are more in the market for a deal than uh, perhaps it looks like um, from afar. James, can I ask you something just to go back to what we were talking about about this process and how it might play out when everybody gets back from their school holidays at the end of August and you've got seven or eight weeks of this real, you know, high tight wire act going on politically. Uh, you have a new prime minister uh, as I said earlier, I'm a little unclear as to exactly where he's going to stand on this. He he leads a very strange coalition within his own party, um, right across the political spectrum in, in some ways. Um, I was looking at uh, some pieces in in the Guardian. Admittedly, not a not a fan of Boris Johnson, but a piece in the Guardian this week about his early days as mayor of London, which painted a picture of utter chaos. And uh, do you think that he can, uh, to mix my metaphors horribly, hit the ground running uh, on, or hit the tight wire running in early September effectively? I, I mean, this is the this is the this is the sixty four thousand dollar question about Boris Johnson. He is he is never going to be. Um, a smooth and ordered politician in the way that, that say, a Tony Blair was. That there is, you know, as, as someone involved in his transition planning said, you know, you know, this this is going to Boris country. They do things differently there. There's always going to be a certain level of chaos. But I think the kind of question is, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll be a hundred days essentially from when he becomes prime minister to October thirty first, and he's and you know he has got to have a plan to get through that and he's got to have and i think this is the kind of the crucial question to my mind is he has got to calibrate what his brexit ask is successfully given the constraints on time i also think that you know politically i think that those close to him are aware that you know they've they've got to deliver brexit that is the kind of the the political sine qua non but in political terms, if that is Brexit with a deal, uh, 
then I think things look set fair for him for a kind of general election maybe in the spring of next year which I think you could you know to the extent you can be confident of anything in British politics at the moment you could be fairly confident of would probably return a kind of 40 50 seat majority for him because most of the air would have come out of the Brexit party balloon the Labour Party would still be very divided you'd still have the Lib Dems and the Greens eating into that vote so I I mean I I think I think clearly it is massively in his political interest if at all possible to get a deal I, I agree 100% with that. I think it's overwhelmingly in Boris's political and electoral interests, leave aside the national interest for a moment, to uh, to get a deal, which is why he will, whatever his ask is, will have to be deliverable. Now, you can see from, you know, a tactical perspective what the EU, the Irish government may be doing now saying no question about any concession, no question about any concession, backstop stays, that's it, no change, talk to us about the political declaration uh, when you're you're ready. But we shouldn't forget that they will want a deal as well. The EU as a body is... Uh, is, is is structured to achieve compromise. That's uh, that's what it does, and that is why I think that there may be, uh, you know, there may be questions for Leo Varadkar uh, to to answer in September. I mean, I I think, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is a very genuine frustration in Brussels and Dublin at this because, after all, they agreed a uh, they agreed a deal with the British government. And it's a fundamental precept of international relations and treaties that governments stand by the agreements of their predecessors. But we seem to be in a special case as regards that at the moment. Last word from you, James. What kind of odds are we talking about? If you were, if you were, if I was asking for odds of a of a disorderly Brexit, are we talking three to one, two to one, evens? I, I- I always worry that giving odds kind of implies kind of greater mathematical precision um, to, to all of this than, than, there, than there actually is. Um, I, I think the chances of a deal are better than generally appreciated, but I think, but I think the risk of, uh, of kind of no deal, of kind of almost an accidental no deal, are still really quite high, which is that both sides could dig in and not 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 climb out of their entrenched position until it's until you know until it's too late and i think this this is the challenge i mean i think the political challenge is how do you get a deal you you basically have to get a deal that can be sold in 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 four different places simultaneously it has to be a deal that can be sold in that in Westminster in the UK, so in GB, so it can pass the House of Commons. It has to be a deal that the DUP feel that they can accept in Northern Ireland. It has to be a deal that um, works for the Radka in, in political terms. And it has to be a deal that um, Emmanuel Macron and other European leaders feel um, demonstrates that, that, that you know that leaving the EU isn't a bed of roses. And I think you know, I think I think there is a path to something that that can fit all four of those that can pass all four of those tests but it but it is but it is a, a narrow path as you say and it does require the sort of nuance and political skill from the new Johnson administration that I, I am making a face here at the moment so far i think it's fair to see it being his hallmark <laughs> on that on that happy note we leave it there james thanks so much for joining us today brilliant pleasure you're listening to the irish times now, Pat is still with us and we're joined also by Irish Times columnist Una Mullally. Una, you're very welcome. Thank you. Um, 
we're here. We want to discuss Noel Whelan. I was away for a couple of weeks, as listeners may know, and I heard of his very sad passing uh, only last week. I knew he had been unwell, seriously unwell, but it really the, the the speed of his his demise really was really came as a shock. And he was a he was a young man. He was only he was only fifty years old. He was a very valuable part of the Irish Times uh, op-ed team, but he was also a political activist. He was a significant figure in the legal profession here. He uh, he had a whole range of interests, um, but we wanted to talk to him, talk particularly about his work uh, in and around the Irish Times and around politics. Uh, here's, a, here's a clip of him talking a, a few years ago now in a debate that we held during the marriage equality referendum uh, with Breed O'Brien. I understand why there is at times intense anger among many, uh, particularly in the gay and lesbian community, for whom this isn't just a political issue. For them, this is something that defines their very existence. This is something that becomes a question of whether they are worthy, becomes a question of whether they are equal, becomes a question of whether they are constitutionally recognised. And part of the function, I think, of those of us uh, who have uh, engaged to work with uh, groups on the yes side of the campaign is to say, um, we, I understand the frustration. I mean, just think of it, the frustration of having to ask the entire country whether you can marry the person you love must be deeply frustrating uh, for people who are uh, gay and lesbian and who are currently locked out of that constitutional protection. Uh, And to say, yes, I know it's frustrating, but in the same way that all those who have campaigned for civil rights, whether for blacks to vote in America or for women uh, to get equal pay, then they've always had to, in a sense, persuade a general mass audience. So, Una, you were writing about about Noel this week, Mm. and he and you were part of the very broad coalition uh, around the the marriage equality referendum. Is that when you first got to know him? Uh, no, I think I first got to know him during the Shannad referendum campaign, which I was kind of involved in at the beginning on the periphery with the Democracy Matters group of Virgil Quinn and Catherine Zapone and Noel. And then I suppose when the the campaign, the referendum campaign was kicking off in earnest, then Noel was, you know, essentially a strategist and advisor within um, the Yes Equality group, which was that coalition between people from um, marriage equality, which originated with the Cal case with Catherine and Louise and then uh, Glenn as well. You know, so there was already, you know, this entente cordiale between those two groups to, to form um, the executive of that group. And then Noel and various other people were working as advisors and strategists. So, And is I, it fair to say that involving people like Noel, who came from a Fianna Fáil background, yeah. had been involved in the McAleese campaign, presidential campaign in 1997, um, that that was part of a, a sort of a broadening of the tent that was going on at that point? I think, you know, these kind of campaigns always require a strategic uh, broadening, I suppose. And it was very obvious that uh, although the people involved, let's say, from the LGBT community were, you know, really great political activists, having people who were, um, you know, kind of dominant in, in public life who would go out to bat... Uh, from a different kind of perspective uh, was going to be really important. You know, there was always this sentiment within that campaign, you know, about this mantra, you know, the unexpected voice, the unexpected voice. And it was going to be the unexpected voices that were going to communicate the message um, probably in a much more, you know, compelling way than the expected voices. You know, everybody expects, um, you know, uh, the, the various people that we know who were dominant in that came as well, you know, like Colin McGorman, Alva Smith, um, Gorn Healy, like people like that. Like we know that these people are queer people. We know that they're going to want um, 
their equality and therefore having folks like Noel. And then as obviously this campaign very strategically rolled out to include, you know, this vast number of voices from public life, from sporting life, from entertainment, um, you know, it's hitting all these different kind of aspects of that people then couldn't not find somebody to identify with that was like, well, if they're saying it, then, you know, maybe I should get on board. Sure, well. but Noel was a strategist as well as a public Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. And Noel is a strategist as an, an analyst of political strategy over the years, Pat. I mean, you uh, you have on your CV some some books about the, the party from which he, he essentially sprung, Fianna Fáil, so you kind of, you, sw- you swam on some similar waters. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've known Noel for years, but in that capacity as a kind of pure political analyst as a numbers guy he had an encyclopedic knowledge of constituencies not just constituencies local electoral areas around uh, the country and he produced of course uh, the tallyman uh, the tallyman books so which were uh, uh, which are a real think, bible for Irish electoral politics and, uh, yeah. so and and his wife Sinead McSweeney in of course a very moving eulogy at at, at his funeral last Saturday spoke about how he 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 kind of changed and his view towards politics. Uh, I, I I think she she portrayed him as kind of becoming more concerned about social issues and equality issues and that in in the, the kind of latter phase of his political development. And as it turned out, so I suppose in a way it wouldn't have been surprising to see Noel turn up as a strategist on some of these social issue campaigns. What was surprising, uh, I think, is that he was such an effective advocate in a public role in those uh, in those campaigns. So on the one hand, I suppose he had this uh, you know, the kind of analytical background and the knowledge of the political geography uh, of uh, of of the country, but also because of his own development on those issues, and I think because he came from where he came from, he had an appreciation that, say, particularly in the case of the marriage referendum, that lots of people were instinctively nervous about the change they were being asked to make. And he appreciated that and he respected that. And I think that's one of the things that made him a very effective advocate for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true. Listening to that to that clip, Buddha, I mean, you can tell that the sincerity, you know, the sincerity in the voice and the kind of description, I think, you know, almost it's not quite there in the clip, but it's kind of implicit in it that he has come on a journey to the point in which he articulated there and his view of coming to a realisation Oh, that people were being denied their rights. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how, like, you know, how um, much of an arc that journey really had. You know, I think um, it was more so about uh, perhaps the the journey really was like how much this, this actually mattered to people. Um, and I think that, you know, broadly, obviously, the pol- polling had shown for a long time that, you know, the Irish public were very much on board with marriage equality um, and that it was more so um, a little bit of... Um, nervousness in, you know, let's say conservative to mainstream political um, circles that this was going to be much more difficult uh, than it turned out to be um, in terms of But the no numbers. one would have been a conservative to mainstream political figure. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I suppose like the, the political establishment wasn't reflecting the public um, appetite for this change, you know. Um, so I think that he was kind of a bridge, I guess, between those two things. Um, and I think... 
you know, there's so many notable allies in in that campaign, and I guess I was writing about the the importance of allyship this week, and sure. really, you know, I think that, you know, from talking to him and from seeing how he became invested uh, so much in that campaign, I think one of the things that was very moving for him, that was quite profound for him, was that like people within the LGBT community were so grateful for his work and for the work of other straight people because obviously the community had been trying themselves to affect change for so long on this and it was very slow and it was very arduous and it was very, um, you know, it was fraught with division with regards to, you know, the split in the community around civil partnership was very, very uh, bitter at times. And so a lot of the work had been shouldered by the community and the fact that, you know, in you know, late 2014, early 2015, that people were coming on board who didn't necessarily have, you know, a direct investment in it or weren't directly affected by it became a very um, moving piece of that um, campaign for LGBT people. I want to talk about Noel as a as a political analyst as well, you know, his regular column in the Irish Times, going back, you know, many years, his analysis, his reading in, in his obituary about how I think some of his... Uh, probably former colleagues in Fianna Fáil were, were not particularly happy when he predicted with great accuracy the uh, the disaster which was about to befall the party in uh, in, in the election, general election of 2011. And he was he was pretty good at spotting trends and, and extrapolating from them as to what was going to happen. Yeah, he spotted that early on. And, you know, in a way it was a kind of a clear-eyed and ruthless reading of the numbers, but also of the additional bit... Uh, of of in, in in terms of analysing politics, which is just that sense of a national mood, and I think it was in the autumn of uh, the autumn of 2010 when the country was sliding towards the bailout that Noel actually addressed the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. I think he was asked in as part of a kind of outreach they were doing, asking people to come in and talk to them. And Noel went in and talked to them. And this is, you know, a good bit before, several months possibly before the 2011 uh, local, uh, the 2011 general election that saw Fianna Fáil absolutely decimated. And he went into them and he said... Most of you need to go back to your families now and prepare them for the great change that is going to come in your lives because most of you will lose your seats. And I think that was quite shocking for a lot of them to hear at uh, at the time. But it was a product, I suppose, of that sort of... The, the, the kind of lack of sentimentality that good analysts need, uh, uh, you know, to, to marry... Their, you know, their, their their analysis of the numbers and what that means to speaking to people realistically mm. about yeah, it. Yeah, it was a real straight shooter. Like always, analyze with such clarity. And I think you're right. It's that piece of having the very like in the weeds analysis of numbers and all that kind of stuff. But then having this perspective piece, this very big picture aspect that he was able to gauge and able to understand, which I suppose came from also being engaged with issues very much. Kind of at a grassroots level, I suppose. Yeah. Um. While also having this like very analytical, mathematical brain with regards to you know, like the, as you're saying, you know, the Taliban book, which is that that bible for people. 
And one of the things I, I think that always happens when um, when people die and then people come together to remember them at a funeral or after their death is you realise that everybody has all these different worlds around them mm-hmm. and that then those worlds come together, these overlapping Venn diagrams of different communities. And Noel particularly had these huge worlds in the, you know, the, the world of politics, of media, uh, of law and, you know, civil society in many ways. And certainly I don't know about you, but I'd run into him from time to time on the street and he was always up for a chat and mm. talk, you know, and he always had something interesting to say, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's 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 not unusual, you know, that that you know, in those sort of circumstances when people die, people realise a sort of different worlds that you know the deceased has been involved in and the connections that exist between them. What was unusual about Noel is that he did that he he he, he did those things to a very high level in yeah. all those different aspects uh, of uh, of his life. But you know, to my Mind what struck me most at the funeral was not so much that, and that was obvious, of course, by the extent of the, uh, the crowd of the crowd there, and the president was there, and so forth. Uh, but actually, the kind of human story of his own life, the family he leaves behind, the very close group of pals that he had, many of whom were, you know really visibly devastated uh, at the funeral and at the heart of the ending of all of our lives I suppose that's that's the bit that that endures notwithstanding all the kind of work that that he did to make people you know to to affect political change and that at the end of it what struck me about the funeral was a kind of was the man human story and, yeah. and, and the sadness of that yeah I think when Sinead said, you know, um, that he never wasted a day, I just thought what an amazing thing to to say about somebody and such a uh, a thing to strive towards, you know, to not waste a day. Um, and I do think that, you know, so many people of my friends, like, you know, um, gay and lesbian friends, you know, were texting each other or whatever. So many people in the community never met him, never knew him, were so... Um, devastated by his death and also like really holding on to that allyship that was displayed um and it's very instructive you know that he really did step up and did something bigger than himself and used his privilege in that way um and you know that won't be forgotten indeed and our condolences to Sinead and his and his son Seamus may he rest in peace Una thanks for coming in and that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to James Forsyth for joining us earlier. Thanks also to Una and to Pat. Remember that you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.